I want to read Daniel 9, 20 through 23 to lead us into the verses 24 through 27 to set the stage. Daniel 9, 20. Now, while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin, this is Daniel, think about that. Daniel, a man whom we revere greatly, confessing his sin. Yes, he acknowledged that he was a sinner. And the sin of my people Israel. And presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision, semicolon. And we'll pick it up there. Let's pray. Father God, we pray for insight and understanding as we look at this very important passage that we refer to as Daniel's 70 weeks and how it ties right in with the book of Revelation and what's coming soon to our planet. Lord, bless this time of study now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we go. Daniel's 70 weeks. Daniel, perhaps the most important companion book to the book of Revelation. If you want to enhance and expand your understanding of Revelation, which we're studying right now on Sunday mornings, you could launch your own study in the book of Daniel to go along with that. But here we go. 70 weeks, or in the NIV it says seven, 70 sevens. And as we go along, it'll become obvious that the, these are years 77s, 490 years, because Daniel had been thinking about the years of the captivity of the Israelites. He was captive there in Babylon, and they had finished about 68 of the 70 years when he wrote this, when he received this uh, information from the angel. Back in Daniel 9:2, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem, 70 years of captivity in Babylon. The 490 could not designate days, for that wouldn't be enough time for the events prophesied here in Daniel 9, 24 through 27 to take place. The same is true of 490 weeks of seven days each. That would be 3,430 days or about nine years, still not nearly enough time. Also, if days were intended here, you would expect that Daniel uh, would have added that phrase after the 77s or 70 weeks of days, but he didn't say of days. And in chapter 10, verses 2 and 3, he, he wrote literally about three sevens of days, or in the NIV it says three weeks. So when it means days, then Daniel says days. Here it's 70 weeks or sevens. And we'll see again here the reason for the 490 years in a moment. So in response to Daniel's prayer regarding the 70 years of captivity, God responds through the angel by telling him, telling Daniel that an additional 490 years is required of the people of Israel because they had failed to keep the sabbatical year the entire time they were in Babylon. So the requirement was, according to Leviticus 25, every seven years... While they were in the land of Israel, uh, they were to let the land rest. It's called a Sabbath 
year, every seven years. And in addition, all debts were to be canceled, kind of like a, a God-ordained bankruptcy, if you will. They, all debts were canceled. Indentured servants were to be set free, all part of God's grace and mercy, that even someone who was forced to sell themselves into slavery because of their poverty would only have to do that for seven years and then they'd be set free. The debts would be abolished. They'd missed 70 sabbatical years because they'd been in captivity for 70 years, but God was requiring them to repay that seven times over. Leviticus 26, 18 and verse 21. And if you take the 70 times 7, you get 490 years. So this prophecy, it's important to understand, it's, it's not concerned with world history or church history, but with the history of Israel and the city of Jerusalem. By the time these 490 years run their course, God will have completed six things for Israel. We're going to go over those in just a minute. The first three have to do with sin, which really goes even beyond Israel to all people. But the second three have to do specifically with the millennial kingdom of Christ. And the basis for the first three was provided uh, in the work of Christ on the cross, but all six will be realized by Israel at the second advent of Christ. We've just celebrated what we call the first advent, the birth of Christ to the Virgin Mary 2,000 years ago. The second advent is when he returns with his saints to rule over this world. So let's look at these six things. One, to finish the transgression, which in this instance is speaking specifically about the apostasy of the Jews, to bring the apostasy of the Jews to an end. This hasn't happened yet. Now, there are a growing number of Jews in Israel and all over the world who are turning to Christ, but they're still in the minority. The majority of Jews are either non-believing when it comes to Jesus as their Messiah, and many of them are secular Jews who don't really practice any faith at all. So the transgression has not yet been finished, and it's going to take this seven years of tribulation to finally bring the Jewish people to recognize Jesus Christ as their Messiah. Number two, to make an end of sins. Jesus conquered sin on the cross, right? But people have not yet stopped sinning, have they? In fact, let's be honest, we don't, as believers, we don't want to sin. We try not to sin, but we're still living with that dual nature. The new person, the new man, the new woman in Christ versus the old man. That's why Paul says, I beat my body into submission. You know, we crucify the flesh. But as I've used uh, the uh, example when we studied the book of Romans, that old flesh is like a zombie. It keeps coming up out of the grave and trying to take over again. It's a battle we will fight for the rest of our lives. So to make an end of sin, yes, Jesus conquered sin on the cross, but the human race is still steeped in sin. In the millennial kingdom, there will be no sin, for only the righteous will be allowed, and Jesus uh, allowed into that kingdom, and Jesus will not allow or tolerate any sin in his kingdom. We've seen in our own world what happens when you become more and more lax regarding the upholding of justice and righteousness. Uh, it just propagates. Sin just multiplies and magnifies. Revelation 2.27, He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, 
as I also have received from my father, Revelation 12, 5, she bore a male child, Israel, the male child being Jesus, the Messiah, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. So, and we'll talk more about that in a moment, how the Messiah was cut off. We know that uh, Jesus did not receive his earthly kingdom at his first visit. Revelation 19.15, now out of his mouth, this is the second coming, comes a sharp sword, that's the power of his word, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. There are many today who mock God, who mock his son, and they have the attitude that, uh, well, if God was really such a big deal, you know, if God, if you're so big and strong, strike me with lightning. What a stupid thing to say, by the way. But the thing is, God is holding back. He's holding back his judgment, but he will not hold it back forever. Do not mistake his restraint for a lack of action. In the Bible... It talks about the meekness of Christ. Meekness is power under control. And that the fullness of his power will be exercised at the proper time, which is going to be very soon. The people, you know, you hear this new terminology that's come out over the last few years, zero tolerance. The people of this earth haven't seen what real zero tolerance looks like yet. Okay, the third thing here. We've had finished the transgression, make an end to sin. Number three, to make reconciliation for iniquity or atone for wickedness. And that refers to the death of Christ on the cross, which is the basis for Israel's future forgiveness, the atonement. Zechariah 12.10, Romans 11.26 and 27, if you're taking notes, are references to this. To atone for wickedness. Fourthly, to bring in everlasting righteousness. And again, this will be fulfilled when Christ returns in his millennial kingdom. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Fifth, to seal up vision and prophecy. To set God's seal of fulfillment on all the prophecies concerning the Jewish people and Jerusalem. When Christ returns and establishes his millennial kingdom, there'll be no more need for prophecy or vision. Because we will see him face to face. He'll be here amongst us. And this is spoken of in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning of verse 8. Love or agape never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail or cease. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Where there is knowledge, it will vanish away. It's speaking here of the impartation of these things to the believer by the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit. We won't need those because we will have Jesus himself amongst us. For we know in part and prophesy in part, imperfectly because we are imperfect people. But when that which is perfect has come, that's Jesus, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, writes Paul. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly. We've talked about this before. The mirrors in Paul's days were not as bright and clear as the mirrors we have today. Have you ever seen an antique mirror from like 100, 150 years ago? It's got a black tinge to it. Have you seen that? 
That's what he's talking about. The mirrors that they had did not give a very clear image. And that's how it is for us now. Although God has made known so many wonderful, amazing things to us in His Word, our ability to fully understand and fully grasp is limited by our tainted hearts and minds, our mortality. Again, that duality, the dual nature, the the old man versus the new man. But then, face to face, now I know in part. Again, it's an ongoing pursuit, a lifelong pursuit to learn as much as we can about God through His holy scriptures, through the impartation of knowledge and understanding by the Holy Spirit. But no matter how much we learn, we will have only scratched the surface in this life. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. Just the other day, I was, I was grappling again with the, just the whole concept of the eternal nature of God. It's, it's really beyond my mental capacity to really fully grasp and understand the eternal existence of a being that has no beginning and no end. Because everything that we see around us has a beginning and an end, our own lives included, right? And to think about that, that God has always existed forever, it, it just blows my mind. I don't know about you guys. But you know what? When we see Him face to face, it'll all be clear. We'll understand. We'll know, even as we are known. So that was number five, to seal up vision and prophecy. Won't need it anymore. Number six, the final one, to anoint the most holy. And this speaks of the anointing of the Holy of Holies in the Millennial Temple. Now, there's a lot of talk about the rebuilding of the temple, and everything we see in the Scriptures seems to indicate that right at the very beginning of the tribulation, during that time when the Antichrist, we'll cover this in a moment, makes that peace treaty between Israel and their enemies, which is happening even now, have you noticed? More and more Arab nations are lining up and signing peace treaties with Israel. Who would have ever thought that would happen? The, the temple is already ready to go. I've been to the Temple Institute in Jerusalem multiple times. They have everything needed to reestablish the temple. It's, all the components are there stored in warehouses ready to be assembled, okay? They can have that temple up and nothing flat. They've got all the musical instruments. They've got all the other implements for the temple, the garments for the priests. They've got priests in training. Everything is ready to go the moment the word is given. Right now, the Muslims have control of the Temple Mount. Obviously, that's going to change at some time in the near future. But this is not, you see, here's where the confusion lies. This is not the millennial temple of Jesus Christ. This actually becomes the temple of the Antichrist. And we'll see that in just a moment. So, it might sound exciting, but really this construction of the tribulation temple... That's not the temple God has in mind for the millennium. Verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Interestingly, it's divided up here into segments. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. Now, this time period designated here by Gabriel runs from the command to rebuild Jerusalem until the coming of the Messiah. 
It's a total of 483 years. Remember, though, we're working with 490. So we're seven years short so far. But the 77s, or 70 times 7 years, 490 years, begins with the commandment of Artaxerxes Longimanus, which was given in 445 B.C., Nehemiah 2.5. Now earlier, almost 100 years earlier, King Cyrus had authorized the rebuilding of the temple in 538 B.C., 2 Chronicles 36, 22 and 23, Ezra 1, 1 through 4. But it was finally the commandment of Artaxerxes Longimanus in 445 B.C. that really got things going. So there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens, or weeks, or 490 year, 49 years plus 434 years for a total of 483. Now, probably the definitive work on this a gentleman by the name of Sir Robert Anderson did tremendous mathematical calculations and investigations to come up with this. This is a quote from his book, The Coming Prince, Sir Robert Anderson. Great. I recommend it highly. So he says, the Julian or Roman date of the 10th Nisan was Sunday the 6th of April, A.D. 32, the day that Jesus entered Jerusalem on the donkey, Palm Sunday. He calculated it right down to the exact date. According to Sir Robert Anderson, it was April 6th, A.D. 32, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey. He says, what then was the length of the period intervening between the issuing of the decree to rebuild Jerusalem and the public advent of Messiah the Prince? Between the 14th of March, 445 B.C., and the 6th of April, A.D. 32. What was the interval? He says it contained exactly, and to the very day, 173,880 days. I love the specificity of the Bible as you really get into it. 173,880 days, or 70 times 69 prophetic years of 360 days. The Roman calendar is a solar calendar. That's We have 365 days. We have a leap year every so often. But the Jewish calendar is really a more accurate calendar, and it's based upon the lunar cycles. And so the Jewish calendar has 360 days, and based upon that, you come out to these exact dates. Seven times 69 prophetic years of 360 days, the first 69 weeks of Gabriel's prophecy given to Daniel here. The street shall be built again and the wall, or with streets and a trench, or plaza and moat. And as it turns out, the public square and moat were rebuilt by the time that the first seven weeks, the 49 years, were completed. So that's phase one. And then verse 26, after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself, And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war with desolations are determined. So after the 62 weeks, after the 62 sevens. So we have the first grouping, 49 years. The second grouping, 434 years. Add them together, you get 483 years. And as I mentioned earlier, we're still short seven years. But at this point, at the end of the 
second group, which brings us up to a total of 483 years, April 6, 32 A.D., the anointed one, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, will be cut off and will have nothing. The phrase cut off means to destroy or to kill. And so the prophecy very accurately says that after 483 years, the Messiah would come but would be killed, which he was. He was crucified and would not at that time receive his earthly kingdom. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world at this time. If it was, I would fight for it. And then after the Messiah is cut off, and that's where a lot of the confusion came. The people expected Jesus to take up his kingdom right there, his throne, and he didn't. It wasn't the right time. He came first to save us from our sins, to be the Prince of Peace, the King of Hearts. When he returns, he will rule over this world with a rod of iron. Then we see that the people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The ruler who will come is the one we were introduced to a couple of weeks ago in Revelation chapter 6, the one riding forth on the white horse. This speaks of the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. That happened in 70 A.D. under the Roman general Titus and his legions. They destroyed the city. They destroyed the temple. The Jews were scattered and dispersed. Many of them killed. And so the people of the ruler who will come, the Romans who are the people of the prince who is to come. Interestingly, Again, we look at the Roman Empire, we look at Europe, which the Roman Empire encompassed pretty much all of Europe. But I learned something uh, recently, you may have already known this, I, I'm kind of a history buff, but I hadn't really picked up on this, but Hitler's Third Reich. For one thing, it meant thousand-year reign. Hitler's intention was that he would establish a global dominion that would last for a thousand years. And it was considered to be the natural successor of the First Reich, which the First Reich was the Roman Empire. Again, exactly how this all will line up, we don't know. For years, the prevailing idea was that, uh, that Rome would be the center of the one world government, economy, and religion. There have been other ideas that have been floated about since then. But it's the spirit, really, of the Roman Empire that all-encompassing global empire that was the most powerful empire in the world for hundreds of years. And Hitler sought to revive that and came close to doing it. And now, as we've seen, on the, especially on the video today, uh, the goal of the communist Chinese to do basically the same. So we could say, regardless of whether it's literally Rome, it's that spirit of world domination, the desire to dominate and control the entire world and everyone in it. So because these events were to occur after the 69th week, after the 69 weeks had run their course, and before the 70th week, there must be a space of time between the conclusion of the 69th week and the beginning of the 70th. There's nothing in Scripture that demands all 490 years run concurrently. God can space them out any way he chooses. Let's go on to verse 27. Then he, this prince that is to come, 
shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, seven years. But in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Again, the he is the prince, and he was actually introduced in the book of Daniel in chapter 7, verse 8, and verses 24 through 26. Speaks of confirming a covenant with many for one week for a seven-year peace treaty with the many, the Jewish people and their adversaries. And again, to the shock and amazement of almost everyone, that's been happening lately. These various Arab nations have actually, who have resisted Israel for its entire modern existence, are now aligning with Israel. I mean, on the surface level, that would seem to be a good thing, but as we see what it will evolve into is this agreement with the devil himself, basically, with the beast, the Antichrist. In the middle of the week, now we saw that there'd be an end, yeah, an end to sacrifice and offering. So this, again, tells us right now there is no sacrifice and no offering for the Jewish people because there's no temple. You have to have a temple to be able to do the offerings and the sacrifices. So at the beginning of the tribulation, when this peace treaty goes into effect, Israel will be able to rebuild their temple and begin to offer up sacrifices again, but in the middle... So he's going to let them do this for the first three and a half years. But in the middle of the week, three and a half years later, the Antichrist will break his covenant. On the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, or on the wing of the temple he will set up an abomination that causes desolation. He will desecrate this temple by demanding that he be worshipped instead of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He'll be working his way into this for the first three and a half years. Matthew 24, 15, and 16. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, not the most holy, not the holy of holies, but the next section out in the temple, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And the scriptures indicate that those Jews who are wise and are understanding will flee to the rock fortress of Petra or Petra over in Jordan. Now, there are some who say, oh, this was fulfilled by Antiochus Epiphanes in 171 B.C. when he sacrificed a pig on the altar. But they're wrong because Jesus and Paul both spoke of this abomination of desolation as a future event some 200 years after Antiochus. Yes, that was an abomination when Antiochus slaughtered a pig on the altar in the temple, but it wasn't the abomination that causes desolation. Just like you could say there have been numerous world leaders that definitely were under the influence of Satan and had many of the attributes of what we would consider to be the Antichrist, perhaps most recently and most graphically Adolf Hitler. There have been others. And in fact, people living at the time that these various evil world leaders rose to power, oftentimes people would begin to say, Wow, this guy's got to be the Antichrist. A lot of people thought Hitler was the Antichrist back in the 40s, 30s, and 40s. And he certainly was an Antichrist, but he wasn't the Antichrist of the tribulation. Okay, on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. So he's going to have his 15 minutes of fame, if you will. He's going to have his moment of power, But in the end, 
At Christ's second coming, Antichrist and his false prophet will be cast into the lake of fire. Revelation 19, 20. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence. Signs and wonders to fool the people. Either counterfeit or satanic. The devil cannot create, he can only imitate. Remember Janus and Jambres in the courts of Pharaoh? Came up against Moses. They looked like they really had some power until Moses shut them down. By which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. I will reiterate as we uh, get ready to close here this morning. I will reiterate again that the key to understanding end times prophecy is Israel. And yet we have two-thirds of the church today, particularly in America, that have embraced replacement theology. Replacement theology teaches that God has cast Israel aside permanently, that Israel is no longer relevant. It's totally unbiblical. And yet, two-thirds of churches have embraced replacement theology, and you cannot fully understand Bible prophecy if you push Israel out of the picture. Because God is not a man that he should lie. He keeps his word. He keeps his promises. He keeps his covenants. And he has an everlasting covenant with the Jewish people. Now, just like we Gentiles, not all Jewish people are great people. They're not all likable. Just like we Gentiles are not all great people and we're not all likable. So it has nothing to do with that. God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. We don't get saved because we deserve it. We get saved because God loves us. Israel doesn't get restored because they deserve it. They get restored because God promised to do so. The key to understanding end times prophecy is Israel. If you move Israel out of the picture, you will be totally confused. You will never understand what's really going on. And again, those who don't believe in a pre-tribulational rapture just don't get it. For the last 2,000 years, we've been living in the church age, the time of the Gentiles. Paul went first to the Jew and then to the Gentiles. In the early days, the church was made up primarily of Jews, but as time went on, the body of Jesus Christ became more and more a Gentile group. The focal point of the tribulation is twofold. I've told you this many times. I'll say it again. It's to judge a wicked, evil, unbelieving world. I think we have one of those. And to restore Israel. The church has been standing for Christ for 2,000 years, fighting for Christ for 2,000 years. Not always done a great job, but at least we're trying. So we're going to get to rest in the arms of Jesus while this world is judged and Israel is restored. The nation of Israel officially rejected Christ as their Messiah. He was cut off temporarily. We have one seven to go, and I believe the countdown to the final seven has now begun. We see it more and more every day. If your eyes are open, if your spiritual eyes are open, 
and your spiritual ears are open, you see it more and more every day. Luke 21, 31, Jesus said, So you also, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is near. I'm ready for that kingdom. How about you? Mark 13, 29, So you also, when you see those things beginning, know that it is near at the door. Do you hear God knocking? Do you hear Jesus knocking? He's getting ready to come back. Let's stand. Father God, we thank you for this amazing prophecy in the book of Daniel and how it ties in to the book of Revelation. Lord, thank you for helping us. We thank you for Sir Robert Anderson who did so much hard work to help make it more understandable to us and more precise and more exact. And Father, we are blown away by the precision of your word. There's nothing nebulous about your word. It's very precise, very accurate. We thank you for that. Lord, help us to be able to grasp these things, to understand them, and to prepare for them. Lord, that we would be ready for your return. We'd be ready for the rapture of the church, ready to meet you in the air. And Lord, we pray that you would come just as quickly as possible. Catch us up to meet you, Lord, and then finish your plan. Carry out your plan to judge a wicked, evil world and restore your people, Israel. Thank you, Father. 